What you're trying to do in life is find the things you can go all in on. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Jeffrey Wolf. Coach Wolf is known on Instagram as the Flexi Bowl and is owner of Strength Culture, where he produces ebooks and has a podcast talking about all things strength and flexibility. Today in the podcast, we, we dove into those two things, the, the, the oxymoron that flexible is, why we need to be able to push the boundaries on both of them, why it's not just good enough to have only strength and no mobility, and why it's not good to just be that movement yogi that can is only flexible. He, he dives into kind of the four aspects of flexibility. He takes us down the pathway of the dynamic systems theory and how we can control the individual and help them in that regard of things, as well as work with environments and work on the variability that that athlete is going to see and just expose them to different levels of strength, different ranges of motion of strength, different things that they're going to see on the field and how it's not just as pretty as we all want to make it be in our squats, in our bench. And coach takes us down some deep rabbit holes today. And hopefully you guys get as much out of this podcast as I did. Thank you guys for listening. Well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Austin, thank you so much, man. I'm looking forward to it. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background, kind of who you are and how you got to the point you're at today? Yeah. So um, I guess being an athlete my whole life, we'll just kind of start at the beginning. Um, My dad was a pretty avid baseball player, um, massive baseball fan. He actually um, was enrolled in the uh, Air Force. So he joined the Air Force when I was a young guy, uh, about a year, year old, two years, moved to Texas. And uh, he actually went to try out for a uh, AAA team. He had a, a tryout, got together with some friends the night before his tryout in the batting cage, screwing around. Uh, ball came off the bat, hit him right in the eye, temporarily blind in his, in his uh, left eye for I think it was about six weeks. Uh, missed his tryout. His baseball dreams were over. And... Uh, as soon as I basically was four or five years old, I, I was swinging and, and hitting a ball off a tee. Um, and that's what I did for 14 years. Uh, basically three quarters of the year, I was playing baseball, um, spring league, summer league, and fall league, AAU. Uh, so, so for the most part, except for a month or two out of the year, um, I was a baseball player. That's, that's what I did. And it's, it's all I did. I didn't explore any other sports really until late middle school and high school where I played a little bit of basketball just to kind of have something to do, uh, in that winter season where, uh, you know, that like November, December, January, where I wasn't really playing a lot of ball. Um, so just to, to give me something to do, um, just being an athlete, I I was all right. You know, like if if I go to the gym, I'll be an all right basketball player. I'm definitely not the best, but I can definitely hang, you know, um, just 14 years of, of, of being a baseball player. Uh, my senior year of high school, I ended up, uh, moving. So, that was kind of shitty because you go to a new school, you know, these guys like got a team already. You're kind of this new guy coming in, unless you're just like a stud, there's, there's really no place for you. Right. So my senior year of high school, I, uh, just quit playing baseball, quit playing sports altogether, got active in the gym, you know, like most guys kind of do some guys get exposed a little earlier, obviously in high school, I had some weightlifting 
pseudo weightlifting kind of, of courses that you take in high school. I don't even know if they still do that in high school anymore, but uh, I did have a period where we, we went to the gym and, and learned weightlifting. And then after high school, I basically died, dove right into CrossFit. That was 2008. So that was kind of the, uh, I don't want to say the heyday of CrossFit because CrossFit's so popular, but that's when it started really kind of getting big. Um, so 2008, the box, it, it wasn't a massive sport yet, but you know, where I lived, um, big military presence, CrossFit was very, very popular with the military guys then trained basically at a CrossFit box that was owned by a uh, U.S. Army uh, vet. And then moved to New York City, continued CrossFit for probably about four years. Um, and this is where things really kind of started to take a turn for me because because of playing baseball for, for 14 years and, and really that's all I did, uh, you tend to build some unique patterns that, you, you know, especially in a rotational sport um, that, you know, that are only kind of unique to like tennis, golf and in uh, baseball and to some positions and other like in American football, for instance, a quarterback will probably, you know, develop a lot of these like rotational patterns that just didn't really go well with bilateral weight training. So it was interesting because, you know, every now and then I'm, I'm fortunate. I've never really had a major, major injury. I have had a, you know, a, like a grade two, grade three AC joint sprain in my right shoulder. Uh, it was a pretty gnarly shoulder injury. It was one of those where I just like woke up one day and couldn't do anything. Couldn't do a push up, nothing like upper body was forget it. Just wasn't training it. But CrossFit was, was kind of that the big exposure where I, where I dove deep in more into uh, training than, than before. Again, I, you know, had some exposure previously, but you know, CrossFit is kind of like the, the standard of, of group fitness at this point, you know, almost pretty much all over the world. So, but I had, I had to figure out a way to handle all these issues that I had developed through baseball. Now that they weren't really issues when I played baseball, because I come from kind of like the old school baseball where you don't really do a lot of training, right? Like, you played baseball. That was it. You know, you, you threw, you hit, you were on the field, but you didn't really do a whole lot of strength training, right? Like that hasn't, that didn't really become super popular in, in, in baseball, especially like at a high school level until, you know, maybe the past decade or so. So, um, you know, doing CrossFit shoulder, hip kind of back, sort of just like twingy type of tightness and just random stuff would pop up here and there you know, nothing debilitating. I was always able to just kind of plow through it and, and day after day. Um, and it was then that I discovered, uh, a gymnastics coach, coach Christopher Summers, uh, through a podcast by Barbell Shrugged. Um, and he kind of talked a lot about the mobility and flexibility requirements of athletes that are doing CrossFit and how essentially almost everyone trying to do CrossFit that wasn't, you know, competing at a high level already in CrossFit, you know, a lot of entry-level people, just your normal people, which I would have even considered myself just normal coming into CrossFit. You know, of course I had been an athlete, but, um, just have a lot of mobility deficits. And that kind of like, that kind of sparked something in my brain, um, because at that point, uh, and, and I'm going to open this can, but at that point, the only really quote unquote mobility type of stuff you heard about in CrossFit was all from Kelly Sturette, um, which just included rolling on stuff and foam rolling and bands and pinning and all this just like 
what I now know to essentially be crap. So, uh, <laughs> it's just, it was one of those things that just like got thrown in before and after you come, you become super reliant upon it and, and you find yourself rolling around 30 minutes, 45 minutes before every workout, you know, pinning your shoulder and bands. And it just was like, nothing was changing. It, it just essentially became something I had to do every single day in order to feel like I was going to be able to get my, through my workout without really anything kind of popping up. Right. But it was never sustainable. So I kind of looked into coach Summers some more. Um, and because, you know, CrossFit had, uh, adopted some gymnastics type of stuff into the sport. Um, he really caught my attention because he was very aggressive about his, his point of view. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he was kind of cynical about the way CrossFitters did gymnastic skills. And, I, I kind of pay attention to people like that because look, if you're going to come out the gate and just basically, you know, dog people who are, you know, just don't meet your standard, you get interested in what their standard is. Right. So I started training in the gymnastic body system, which is what it's called. I'm, I'm sure most people by this point have at least heard of it. Um, and so he, he essentially wrote a book called building the gymnastic body, uh, and then later developed it into a program or into a system essentially called gymnastic bodies, which, um, I trained in, ended up working in, teaching in, learning under him directly, opened an affiliate, and I taught gymnastics strength training with some, you know, weight training here or there um, at the same time. So I, you know, I had a partner at the time, a mentor. Also during that time, I was working for a physical therapist for about four years. Um, so learned a lot about training and rehab and, and prehab and stuff kind of from the clinical side, um, which was a really good experience for me. Uh, you know, I just worked as basically like an exercise tech. So, um, I didn't do any manual or, or anything like that, but I was always around him watching him do assessments, uh, just kind of seeing his treatments and, and, and learning that side of training, um, as well. Um, and then from there, basically, um, I just kind of had this, you know, the, the gymnastic body system is an online system uh, and where I'm located in Florida is not the most culturally diverse or like busy uh, town in the state. So being in a brick and mortar gym, I felt was a little limiting. And because, because I was working for a company that was already online, I couldn't release content online because it's, you know, a violation it basically is you know, a, a competing <laughs> business and I can't use their, uh, information to compete with them, you know? So, so I stepped away. Um, I had met a guy here in, in, in Clearwater named Ben Patrick. I'm sure you've heard of him. I'm sure most people have heard this, but by this point I heard of him, AKA knees over toes guy. Um, and I kind of approached him and was like, Hey, you know, I want to come work with you. Um, ended up working with Ben for over three years. Um, he was a big Poliquin guy when, when, when I met him, when I knew him and it was for the most part, all he did was, was Poliquin. Uh, he lives basically lived by Poliquin and I essentially just brought in a lot of the gymnastics and flexibility training that I had learned from coach Summers and kind of merged that with his sort of knowledge from Poliquin. Um, so I learned a lot about the Poliquin system from him. And then from there, obviously, studied Poliquin system myself and other systems that have followed Poliquin, like Kilo Strength Society, YPSI, uh, Wolfgang Unsold out of uh, Germany. Um, have had extensive amount of training under probably some of the best flexibility coaches on the planet. So Emmett Lewis, um, Kit Laughlin, Dan Van Zant, or a bunch of guys who 
uh, and then of course, coach Summers, um, learned a lot about flexibility from them. And, and so this is where my own now almost decade of training and coaching started. I started to blend all these different concepts of, of what I had learned from all these people from CrossFit, from the Poliquin system, from coach Summers, from gymnastic strength training to flexibility training and kind of really, you know, started to piece together myself, uh, what I felt was, was the best and, and what was lacking and kind of taking, you know, that old Bruce Lee kind of thing, like take what's useful, discard what's not. And, you know, over the past decade, I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds and hundreds of, of people in person and thousands of people online. Um, so I, ha I have a good idea uh, by this point, you know, what works and what doesn't work or at least how to, to, to figure it out or to get a person there. Um, and a big piece of that is, is flexibility, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more, but I guess that's kind of like the fast route to some degree of, of how I got where I am. I mean, there's so much more, you know, I have extensive, um, you know, education with FRC system. I mean, I've just like, if it exists out there at some point I've had my nose in it. Um, so, you know, I just go to the best of the best and, you know, at the people at the top, you know, getting their books, you know, researching them figuring out their methods, training under their methods, seminars and online education. I mean, you name it. It's just, it's nonstop for me, even to this day. Like I'll always continue education year in and year out, no matter how much I think I know, because the more you go down that rabbit hole, the more you realize you don't know. So um, it's a fun journey, but that's, that's pretty much how I got to where I am now. I, I, one, I, I want to draw that back onto something is I think it's really cool that listening to that, to the one podcast kind of took you down that entire rabbit hole. Yeah. The, the, the ability of like the amount of connections and how that continued. I mean, it, it, you said you like basically opened a business through, through that podcast and through listening to that one guy. I think that's pretty sweet. Yeah. I mean, it just made sense, right? Like, it, it, so the, and an interesting backstory is look, baseball players actually tend to have a little bit more flexibility than most, most athletes because you get a lot of dynamic flexibility, warmups and stuff out on the field. I mean, I guess most team sports do, and it obviously depends on your coach, but in baseball, I, I guess one of the benefits that I had is that I didn't have an extensive amount of horrible training from a young age. Right. So I wasn't the tightest guy, but I also wasn't flexible, right? Like I couldn't do the splits. I couldn't touch my toes. Um, I, I by no means would be considered flexible, but I wasn't like de debilitating tight where, where I had just done lots of poor short range of motion training for a year after year from a, like a young age already, you know, you get guys in high school that are, are wrecked, you know, by the time they're 16, 17, they've already had three or four years of just really, really bad weight training and essentially no stretching. And it's just like, it, it creates a host of issues. Right. So, um, it just makes, it's just one of those things. Like sometimes you just have to go, okay, this just makes sense. Like what he's saying just makes sense. And, and again, if, if you are bold enough to really like get on a, what at the time was a CrossFit heavy podcast and say, your guys' mobility is trash for what you're trying to do. I'm just like, Whoa, I'm going to go check out what this guy's talking about because you gotta, you gotta be bold. You gotta have some confidence. You gotta be standing on something to make those kind of claims. Right. So for me, it just, it just made sense. And yeah, like you said, it just, it's like Alice in Wonderland. It just, I, from there, it just, down the rabbit hole it went and, and yeah, and, and here I am. So it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> and, and through this rabbit hole, and this is, this is what I feel like something I really want to dive into you is like this flexibility kind of rabbit hole, because you hear flexibility, you hear stretching, 
like you hear it get the bad rap, especially in the American, and we talked a little bit before the podcast, but especially in the American football world where you, you want, you talk about like this big, strong guy, like, it's like don't focus on trashing, focus on lifting, like focus on this type of thing. And I, I really like your approach to like, and I, I mentioned in the podcast notes, but kind of like the oxymoron, like kind of way of training where you talk about the flexi bowl, like you, you have both. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in one, why it's so important to have both. Like, why do you think we need to have both rather than being the movement yogi and only having one side of things or that big meat stick, like why we need both and then how we approach developing both. Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to get good. I mean, okay. So one of my first kind of, the first time I had that realization was I was reading a book by Kit Laughlin called, uh, overcoming back pain. So Kit Laughlin is an Australian. Um, I'm just going to call him a coach. He's also a director. Um, he directed uh, in our movie about Arnold Schwarzenegger, I believe in the eighties. Uh, I might have the time wrong, but it was somewhere in that era, that heyday. It, I believe he filmed a movie about Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back um, after some time off from the Olympia and trying to win, win it in Australia. And he did a documentary on that. But Kit Laughlin was an avid weightlifter, endurance athlete. Um, Ton, you know, t- tons of, uh, education and, and strength training. Um, and he, he ended up doing, I guess, his thesis for his PhD on, on back pain and his book, he talks about how, you know, he has a facility in, in Australia. And one of the biggest kind of aha moments he had was that he kind of had two different groups of people, right. That he worked with. He had the sort of Yogi type of individual that was pretty mobile and pretty flexible right? Like they didn't have tons of mobility restrictions, you know, per whoever's standards, but let's just, let's just go off the, what the body's capable of first, everyone's capable of the splits without a doubt, hundred percent, unless you have some sort of genetic disorder that you're born with, everyone can get the splits. Okay. So that's the kind of person we're kind of talking about is the person who's explored that route of things, right? Like just really good flexibility, really good mobility, but they still have aches and pains, right? And then he had the other group, which were, you know, these athletic, powerful uh, athletes that were really strong, but also had aches and pains. And then he kind of had this group in the middle, right? And this group in the middle had flexibility and mobility, but they had also had a decent level of strength for whatever their life for their body or their sport required, right? And the interesting thing about that group in the middle was they didn't have the aches and pains that the other two groups had, right? So he kind of realized like, it's not just about being flexible. It's not a, you know, that's not going to necessarily dictate whether you're going to have aches and pains in your body. And it's also not necessarily about being strong because as we know, most people are strong in very limited areas, right? So he had the the aha moment of, we have to have flexibility and we have to have strength. Um, And the more that we have of both of those things, you know, essentially the better off that you are. Um, you know, coach Summers had the same mindset, right? Like gymnasts are strong. A lot of people don't understand gymnasts as being extremely strong in Olympic weightlifting is kind of that same sport where you're like, okay, the guy snatches 200 kilos, but it, but to them, like, there's no difference between watching a guy snatch hundred kilos and 200. Like they can't really process most, most people can't really process actually like Oh, it looks the same. Like they can't process the difficulty level. It's the same with gymnastics, especially when those guys are on the rings doing these crazy moves and they make it look effortless. To most people, they're going to be like, "Oh, it, like it looks easy." And then you realize you, you try it, and it's not not as easy as as they make it look. But um, 
So I just, I had these different coaches that kind of touched a little bit on both, right? But no one really took it to the extreme, to the mainstream and just challenging kind of the, you know, the standard per se. Um, because you do hear these things like flexibility makes you weak, flexibility makes you slow, flexibility is passive range of motion. Um, you know, and you hear all these, these things, right? Like it's just, um, which I've come to find over 10 years now, it's just, it's not true. I've, I've not only found that out in, in practicing and working with athletes and clients in my own practice, but now we're starting to see science and literature to back that up. Right. And, and that kind of shows like, you guys have a massive misunderstanding about what flexibility is, you know, and, and because there's more of a vested interest in, in strength training, there's a lot more money in it than there is in flexibility. So there's a lot more studies to back, uh, you know, what we do in a strength training world, especially now that it's so heavily involved with team sports and things like this, um, than, than flexibility. Right. So there wasn't, there just wasn't a lot of information for people to go off of. So you either just a had to trust it or B you're one of those people who rejects it because you don't have any, evidence or literature to back it up. Right. So it's just nonsense. You know, even in the Poliquin system, he kind of was on the head with, with, with his structural balance percentages. If anyone's done Poliquin, they know that Poliquin has certain ratios and stuff um, from muscle group to muscle group that you should try to maintain uh, similar to the Russian style of weightlifting where, you know, your back squat should be, this is your back squat hundred percent. Your front squat should be X percentage of that. Your clean should be X percentage of that. Your snatch should be X percent. You know what I mean? So structural balance in these concepts have existed for a very long time, you know, in, in a, in a small way, but it wasn't so much like trained flexibility, trained strength. That's, it, but when you go back and you look at it with what you know, now you go, Oh, okay. That's essentially what they were trying to do. Right. They were trying to maintain some sort of, you know, balance between sides and range of motion, you know, and, and all these different things. So yeah, it's interesting. I kind of went off there for a second. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's perfect though. And there's something I want to like grab upon because you talked about like most people are strong in a very limited range of motion. Yeah. Um, and this is something I've been writing about and like working on in my own head is like, what is strength? You know, like we, we talk about strength because a guy puts a bunch of weight on his back and is able to squat it. Like, all right, is that strength? Or if you take that same athlete and now he's put in a compromised position that isn't that bilateral position that, which you'll never really see on the field. Um, yeah. anyways, so like why, why, what is strength and why are we using the measures that are easy to see? You know, like it's, it's cause it's like, as a coach, I, I really yeah. get to see that 500 pound squad. I get the, Oh, good job. Like Billy, like that looks yeah, great. Yeah. I'm a great coach to where you, you never see that position on the field. So like how, how can we, how can we compromise these positions in training? How can we work on something like you take that same athlete that, squats 500 pounds. And now you try to have them do something like the splits, you know, and yeah. I just use the word strength in a word, because I think it makes more sense in the American. If I, if I use the word flexibility for them yeah. and they, they instantly shut me off, they're like, they're no, lost. Not, you're lost. You're lost. You're never going to win this, but you tell them like, yeah. all right, like, is he strong in that position? Is he able to yeah. get into that position? If he's not able to get into that position, is he, does he have any strength there? Does that right. make sense? Like how, how do we continue to like kind of open this open this area up for these, these athletes that are very, I, I talk about like fragile and specific, like kind of the modern way of training and bring it back to in the, like in the quotations, like the holistic method. Yeah. I mean, the first principle that I, that I introduced to people, right. And, and this is where people start to go, Oh, okay. Like I'm listening, right. Is that the same system that determines or that allows you to be X strong, 
whatever that means for whatever sport, you know, whether strong enough to be a ballerina, strong enough to be a football player, strong enough to be a soccer player, whatever that means, right? The same system that allows you that strength, because that's what your nervous system does. It allows you to have it, right? Is the same system that operates flexibility. It's something that exists in all of us. We can develop it without a doubt. We have it as kids and kids per, per their, you know, the ratio of their body weight, kids are incredibly strong. Um, and it's something that we, we typically start to lose as we get older for several reasons, right? We specialize in a certain pattern or sport, or we don't do anything. You know, most kids now, unfortunately, they go to school, they're sitting at a desk all day. Uh, there's not a lot of movement, you know, computers and video games and TV and all these things, you know, they've kind of crippled the physical nature of, of our bodies, right? And it's getting younger and younger. It used to be like, okay, you're getting into your 20s and 30s, you're starting to slow down. But I've seen kids as young as elementary school, middle school, unbelievably tight. Like, you're just like, how are you this tight? You're a child, you know? So it's just, um, we start there. The nervous system dictates how strong you are. It will also dictate how flexible you are. These two qualities exist on the exact same system. They're not separate systems, which is how most people have treated it, right? Like strength is like this quality and flexibility is kind of like this quality that exists over here in this other universe that's, you know, for the genetic type and, and it's all genetics and, you know, and blah, 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 blah. But it's simply not true. Um, your nervous system dictates your strength. It also dictates your flexibility. So that's the first thing to understand. Um, you know, essentially the way I look at flexibility is, is we kind of have to look at a few concepts, which most football coaches are not going to have heard of, right? The very first one, um, is a, is a, an idea that's going around. It's been around for a little while, um, but it's called biotensegrity. I won't go so far down the rabbit hole on this one for this podcast, because we could probably just do a podcast on biotensegrity, <laughs> but to give people an idea, Biotensegrity kind of challenges the Newtonian model um, of physics and how we apply it to the body and biomechanics and stuff, right? So essentially what biotensegrity tells us is that our, our body is a system of compression and tension. There's always some part of your body that's under compression and there's always some, some part of your body that is under tension. Um, and this is something that it's an interesting concept because tensegrity is an engineering concept. It's a term which was later adopted to the body because under all circumstances, it's the only model that currently fits all the time and makes sense, right? Physics does not work on the body when you put a body underwater. Physics does not work on a body when you put the body in space. And if we applied the laws of physics in these other environments, our body should either crush or explode under the massive amounts of force and pressure. And we also wouldn't be able to operate the way that we do. And this becomes very important because essentially to, to give people a picture of what tensegrity looks like, like if you're like, okay, what does that mean? I, I tell people to think of a tent, right? So the poles, think of that as your, of your skeletal structure, right? Your, your bones are essentially the poles of a tent, right? And then you put up you know, the covering of the tent and attached to that covering are the ropes that maintain a balance of tension from one side to the other. And how that tension is balanced is going to dictate the form of that structure, right? If more, if the rope on one side is more tense than the other side, then the tent's going to be lopsided to whatever side has more compression. 
And then the other side, just as a natural you know, occurrence, is going to have more tension because there's more compression on the other side. So this system of compression and tension will dictate the form of your structure. Why this is important is because it then tells us that joints don't act like columns and levers, like we prescribe them to. Now, we can still use columns and levers to, you know, to understand certain concepts within training. But, you know, this whole idea of, of neutral spine and shearing forces and all this stuff, it all starts to, to get a little fuzzy because, you know, you, you commonly hear these things, you know, don't squat all the way down because the shearing forces in your knees are intense. You know, um, you should never bend your spine because the shearing forces on your discs are intense. But if our spine wasn't made to, you know, be horizontal against gravity, why do we come out of the womb and essentially the first biomechanical pattern that we develop is crawling, right? So how do birds exist? How do lizards exist? How, do, how does any other mammal that walks on four legs exist if the spine is not made for those forces? It's, 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 it's a column, right? That's, that is how our spine is designed. It's designed as a column. And, you know, at any point, if our, you know, spine tilted to any degrees off center, it, it should just explode essentially um, by the, by the Newtonian models of physics. And that's kind of a crude uh, summary of what biotensegrity is, but I do encourage people to look into it. Um, Stephen Levin is probably the foremost researcher on it. He was a spinal surgeon. Um, and if you Google biotensegrity on YouTube or just put Stephen Levin biotensegrity on YouTube, you'll get tons of great information about biotensegrity. I do have literature on it. So, you know, maybe at the end I can give, if you can't, if you don't know who I am, you can find me on Instagram or my email and, I, and I'll be more than glad to share the research and the data on it um, to give you guys an idea of what it is. Yeah. And I, so the first time I heard of the, the whole biotensegrity and the, this approach was anatomy trains. Uh, it was like the first chapter of that book. And it was, <laughs> it was frustrating. Cause I read that book the, like the month after I graduated college where <laughs> I had just got done four years of learning neutral spine, perfect mechanic, biomechanics, you know, like this perfect structure. And then I read this one book that just kind of shit on everything. I just paid a hundred thousand dollars to go to school for yep. And this is, I really liked your point. You're talking about like, this are, this is our accepted theory of what's happening. And this is our accepted theory because the other theory doesn't work. And the approach to the human body that is kind of complex and complicated, like beyond belief, like you go to the, the, the college sector and you would think the way it's taught, you would think the way that we, we teach it and we kind of go through these textbooks that we have like all these answers. We have everything figured out. Like we know how to cure every injury. We know how to get the best out of our entire bodies. And you just start to realize like we're kind of selling like the, the, the anti-fragile approach, like selling the callous feet. Like we feel, we, we think we understand, we think we know what's best for the body. And we kind of set these limits and we set like things that are kind of made up in the human world on our own yeah. bodies when they're not. Yeah. I mean, and, and the really interesting part, just to give people like some things to think about is the thing about biotensegrity is it works on every level of the body, right? So, you know, your cells all the way down, like everything that you can think of in your body works on, you know, on this concept. So, you know, at the micro level, the cell, the DNA structures, even atomic bonding, it all exists within this tension and compression balance. So why would it be that, every, you know, you're all the way, everything down to your cells works this way. But then all of a sudden, when we get to the macro level and we're looking at an, an individual in the flesh, 
those concepts don't apply. All of a sudden, it's all about physics and levers and all these things. And again, it's, it's, I'm not saying we can't use those things to you know, produce certain leverages or whatever, but we just kind of have to rethink how we look at these things because you know, if you understood the amount of pressure that goes through your body every time your heart beats or when a woman gives birth, you know, based on the math models that people use to argue, you know, physics, 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 we should just essentially explode. You know what I mean? But we don't because, you know, even when we breathe, we breathe in the whole body, the whole system expands. And as we breathe out, the whole body compresses. So the heart beats the same way. Um, everything works that way in your body. So, so we have to look at it a little differently. And, and, and the person who figures out how to merge the two, how do we take the Newtonian physics and how do we take this biotensegrity and kind of merge them together? They're going to win like a, a Pulitzer Prize or something, you know what I mean? Because it's just going to be, it's going to be revolutionary. It, it's really fantastic information. One of the other things that, and, and this is kind of why, how we'll segue into more of why I use flexibility in terms of team sports. And that's understanding dynamic systems theory. Dynamic systems theory is a concept that was using, has been used in psychology for quite some time. It was only recently adopted by, um, into biomechanics and into physiology and, and how it works within a human body. Um, and I'll kind of explain essentially what dynamic systems theory is. So what it is, is that, let, well, first let's start with the way people either A, still do think, or at least used to think, right? And that's when we perform a motor task. Essentially what people think is, okay, if you swing a baseball bat, or since, you're, since your audience is football, let's use football. If you throw a football and you throw a football 10,000 times, your brain downloads this throw the football program so to the point that every time you go to throw a football, it uploads that information and you, you throw a football perfectly, right? Like that's, that's how we were taught. And that's how we were taught that works. Like throw a football 10,000 times, you're going to be a great quarterback because you're going to download the throw the ball so perfectly program into your brain. But that's not actually how it works. Okay. So this is where stuff starts to get really interesting. And we have to go all the way back to, oof, I believe it's twenties. Okay. There was a Russian, uh, you know, biomechanical, whatever you want to call him, engineer, scientist, what have you, um, Nikolai Bernstein. And Nikolai Bernstein was commissioned by uh, the, the Russian government, essentially, after the Cold War to study blacksmiths because Russia wanted to basically figure out how can we, you know, more efficiently produce um, you know, whatever it is that they're blacksmithing at the time, whether it be weapons or, or machinery or whatever. Right. So, you know, how can we basically become more efficient? How can we produce more, uh, faster in a more efficient way? So they had, uh, Nikolai Bernstein study their blacksmiths and what he found was very, very interesting. Basically what he found was he took a novice blacksmith and compared them to the, uh, you know, I don't know, a professional blacksmith, an elite blacksmith, whatever. A guy who's been a really good blacksmith versus a novice, a beginner, right? And the differences that he found were quite interesting. So the thought going in was that the you know, more efficient blacksmith 
is going to have a very specific A to B route of how they accomplish a task every single time. In this case, it's hammer to chisel, right? Hammer to chisel, hammer to chisel. Well, what he found was the opposite. That happens with beginners. So when you're learning a skill, the, the direction, the point from A to B is much more linear, but the outliers and the variability is, is very limited, right? So if you don't go from A to B within this point in this line, you miss that mark unless it's in this exact line every single time. What they found with the more efficient blacksmiths is that the path from A to B changed every single time. So what this tells us is that a skill, a coordinated effort to accomplish a motor task is not the same thing over and over and over. It's a different thing over and over and over, but a different thing in which we still accomplish that motor task. Well, okay, Jeff, that's cool, but what does that have to do with being an athlete? <laughs> well, what makes an athlete an athlete? Coordination, the ability to execute motor tasks under pressure, right? Like, that's, that's, that's what an athlete is, right? Like, can you catch a football? Can you run? Can you block? Can you hit other guys? Can you intercept? Can you do all these? Like, it's almost unlimited in, in the different things that a football player is required to do in one game. The task is never going to be the same. Of course, there's similarities, but if you really look down to it, it's going to be different every single time. And the greatest athletes are going to have the most variability, right? So, we go back a hundred years ago and we knew a hundred years ago that basically everything that people teach now is BS. How we miss that along the way, I have no idea. But then this gets us into dynamic systems theory. So dynamic systems theory, essentially there's three things that will determine how we accomplish a motor task. Okay. The first thing is going to be the task itself, right? Every task has certain constraints or rules that you have to go by that make that task very specific. Like for instance, catching a ball. Like there's only so many ways, like catching a ball is catching a ball, right? Like that's what the task is. So that is one constraint. The other constraint is the environment. So the environment is something else that can impact how we perform a motor task. The fans in the crowd, your dad, your girlfriend, uh, your friend, your other teammates, the other team, right? So the environment itself at which you're placed in to accomplish this motor task also has an effect on how you execute it. And the third thing is yourself, the individual. So you have basically three things that will impact how you execute a motor task at any given time. Yourself, the environment, and the task itself, which every task has a, a set of rules or constraints that's how we define a certain task, right? So, well, why, why is, is this, why does this matter? Well, if we go back to the study on Nikolai Bernstein, we understand that since all these different things can impact how someone executes a motor task, what's the one thing that we have the most control over? The individual itself, the, the, the person performing the task, right? And so what we've seen in field sports is a heavy influence of powerlifting and most recently weightlifting. Why is this a problem? It's a problem because in powerlifting, you have three lifts. You have the bench press, you have the deadlift, and you have the squat. Say what you will, they're partial range of motion. So it's not even full lifts. 
You know, in a powerlifting bench, you arch as much as you possibly can, creating as little space between the bar and your chest as possible. In a deadlift, you know, it's just a partial range of motion because you're not sitting all the way down. It's simply just a hip hip hinge um, and, and some quad extension, but mostly a hip hinge. And then of course the squat, which in powerlifting is only halfway down and it's a hip dominant squat. It's not, you don't even you really use your legs. And why, why is weightlifting a problem? Well, because in weightlifting, you now have two lifts. You have the clean and jerk and you have the snatch. So essentially you're taking an athlete thrown into circumstances in which the variables are infinite, by the way. So within a given football game, all the motor tasks that you require of your athletes are going to change well beyond that of a bench press, a deadlift, a squat, a snatch, and a clean and jerk. There's so many cuts and angles and things that you don't even take into consideration that matter. And essentially what you begin to do is you begin to limit the variability in which an athlete executes motor tasks. If you only ever teach them to bench press, and that's the only way you teach them to use their chest and their shoulders and et cetera, that's the only way they're going to be able to produce force. It's the only way they're going to be able to resist force. But what happens when they go outside of this range of motion right here and I'm, and I'm showing a bench press? Goodbye shoulder, goodbye pec, bicep tear. What happens when uh, you, know, you only do half squats and you're sprinting down the field and your ankle has to dorsiflex and you've never dorsiflexed your ankle? Goodbye Achilles, see you ACL, see you MCL, bye meniscus. You know, so this, I will, I will on audio, on video, whatever, say hundred percent that the way as field athletes, and this goes for every field sport, not just football, the way they are trained is contributing hundred percent to the skyrocketing of non-contact injuries in team sports, because you are taking guys that need to be the most variable athletes on the planet and turning them into powerlifters. And here's a mind blowing fact. Even if you're a powerlifter, Every time you bench, every time you squat, and every time you deadlift, you take a completely different pattern. It's a completely different route. The bar path is never, ever going to be the same. The way the muscle pattern, the way the muscles fire is never, ever going to be the same. That's the other crazy part, right? Like if you put an EMG on a guy who's, who's swinging a baseball bat, you're never going to get an identical muscle pattern firing. It's always going to change every single rep. So if we start to limit the actual range of motion, the flexibility of the joints in the body, and we only develop strength in that very limited range of motion, we leave a lot off the table for a lot of guys. And it's ruining guys. It's making them less athletic. They're making them great powerlifters, but you're making horrible football players. And not necessarily horrible football players and making them less skilled football players, but physically you're setting, up, you're setting them up for disaster. I mean, most guys are, are, are barely pushing through. I've trained NFL guys. I've trained high school guys. I've trained college football players. They, are, they come back crawling from, from training with strength coaches, even at the professional level. Their shoulders are in pain. Their knees are in pain. Their hips are in pain. You know, they're tearing their shoulders on the field. They're tearing their ACLs on the field. They're tearing their, their knees up on the field. Their low back is destroyed. And it's not from, it's not from their sport. It's from the way they're training. So... I kind of operate on those principles and I, and I stand by those principles and that's why I use flexibility for team athletes. It's not like, Hey, let's get you to do the splits. I know we can get you to do the splits, but it's, we need to create more range of motion in your body. And then we need to strengthen this range of motion because who knows what's going to get thrown at you next Friday, but you better be ready for it. Cause if you're not ready for it, likely your season's going to go bye-bye. If you have a pretty, if you have a catastrophic injury.
And, oh. and if you, and if you don't have a catastrophic injury and you're in pain all the time, there's no way you can perform at the highest level you are possibly able to perform at. There's no way. Have you had back pain? Have you had shoulder pain? Your mind is on that all day long. It's on that all day long. That's all you can think about. You're not going to be able to think about playing your sport. And, and, and if you do, most of these places are throwing these kids on drugs, painkillers, you know, Tylenol, whatever, ice baths. I mean, it's just, that's, that's the answer, right? So, you know, and then I'm sure most people will question like, well, do you have any experience training football players? And like I said, yes, I have extensive amount of time training NFL, college and high school teams. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the high school team that we trained. So we trained an international high school football team here in Florida uh, called Clearwater Academy International. It's a, it's like a ragtag group of misfits. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like this school goes to the sticks of the sticks to find athletes that would never get looked at by any schools, not because they're not good, but because they're in the middle of nowhere and college teams don't go there. So they go to places like Canada and Italy and Denmark and all these crazy places and find football players and they bring them together. And these guys are just meeting each other. You know, most high level football teams, especially in Florida and Texas, these boys have been playing together for 15, 16 years. They know each other like the back of their hand. They know each other better than they know themselves, but not this group. These, these guys are fresh. You got to figure it out in the summertime. You got a couple of weeks, a hell week where you're just going to train your butt off and you're going to become close and you got a football season ahead of you. And none of you guys know who each other are. We, we took that approach of training, the, the, the more classic kind of strength training, because yes, at the end of the day, an athlete's ability to overcome inertia is extremely important for for strength and power and speed and all these things. Right. But here's the interesting part about it is that these guys come and they want to power clean. And I mean, forget power clean. They want to just squat and they literally can't squat all the way down to the ground. Their ankles are so tight. Their, their backs, their spines tight, their hips are tight. Good. You'll, you're lucky if you get them to 90 degrees with good form and you know, most schools are just going to throw power cleans at these guys, power cleans and squat, half squats and deadlifts. That's what you guys are going to do. So we kind of took the opposite approach. You know, we use a lot of these like, um, more, more, uh, I guess you could say greater range of motion type strength exercises. So instead of deadlifts, we're doing RDLs and we're doing good mornings and we're pushing the range of motion. And instead of barbell back squats, we're doing split squats and we're doing Jefferson curls where you round your spine and we're doing rotator cuff work. I mean, if you can believe that, you know, healthy rotator cuff work, um, scap work, like just basically undoing all the training that these guys were doing at their high schools, which was, you know, bench press, deadlift and squatting if you were lucky. So, and I think we had one injury, maybe a couple injuries on that, on that team the whole year. Um, they, basically jumped to a a national level. They were ranked. I don't remember the exact ranking. You can look them up, you know, and find out, but they were, they were up there, you know, they were playing the big schools in Florida. They were traveling all over the country, playing some of the top schools from like Tennessee and Texas and Ohio and all these places. Um, and they had a great season. They almost went undefeated. I think they only lost one game, something like that. Um, but I, I would, I would show up to home games and we're out there stretching as a warm up. <laughs> you know, like all of the other teams screaming and yelling and, and getting all hyped up and, and we're out there stretching. And, you know, I had, I had offensive linemen in, in near front splits. If, if not like basically a front split for, especially for an offensive lineman, you know, straddle or pancake stretch. And these are all things people could simply Google fast if they don't know what it is. You know, it, it was incredible to see 
you know, linebackers and O-line guys like flexible. And then guess what? By the second half of the season, these guys are able to squat down all the way. These guys are able to bench press without pain. These guys are able to do all the things that I still think are relevant by doing all the stuff that they don't really want to do, or most coaches don't want them to do because it's boring or they don't just never been trained in it or whatever. But essentially we improved these guys range of motion. They had a healthy season and they were able to train hard. I mean, these guys brought a lot of energy in every single session. They came in hyped and, and ready to go. Um, you know, of course we did other conditioning sleds and, and, and things like this, but you know, we, we kind of took that approach of they, they would train, you know, for an hour, hour and a half every day of the week. And the day before game day, they would come in and they would stretch with me for an hour and a half. That's what we did. That's all we did. They came in shoes off down on the mats. We're stretching for an hour and a half with me. And if you ask any of them, stretching with me is, is not easy. Um, and a lot of these guys got flexible. And, and like I said, they had a healthy season and we've done the same thing with college guys and, and pro guys. And, you know, we take the opposite approach of most guys, like a pro guy would come in and, you know, he's at, he's at, he's with his team and they're bench pressing his shoulders start to hurt. So they add a board, uh, shoulders are still hurting. So they add another board, you know, shoulders are still hurting They add another board where he's basically doing like quarter partial bench press. He comes to us, we stretch out his shoulders, use a cambered bench press bar, open up his shoulders, start doing some pressing overhead. Don't start all of a sudden his shoulder pain disappears. That's like magic, except it's really not if you know what you're doing, you know? So that's my background with football players. And, but the, but the concepts apply to almost any team sport, really any sport, baseball, soccer, uh, rugby, lacrosse, swimming. I don't care what it is. You know, you have to operate on a certain set of principles and those principles that I operate on are biotensegrity, dynamic systems theory, your traditional, you know, biomechanics model, understanding physiology, understanding biology, and then put the training on top of that. Because if you don't understand any of that, you're just shooting in the wind. You know what I mean? It's just like, good luck. Like you're just kind of doing the stuff that's been regurgitated and passed down. And, and you know, if you're, you're lucky if these guys survive it and that's kind of the crux of team sports, right? Is that the pool is so large. If a guy gets injured, the guy gets hurt. There's another guy waiting behind him. You just replace him, move on. Good luck. If you recover, great. We'll see if you come back. If not, well, and I hate to say, I'm not, I'm not saying all coaches are like that, but that's the attitude. If we're really being honest, right? That's there's second line. There's third, there's second string. There's third string. These guys are waiting. These guys are hungry and uh, they're ready to take your spot, man. So, you know, and, and, but it differs in Olympic sports. And so I think that's the interesting thing that kind of makes everything different is a lot of my mentors taught Olympic athletes. And the reason you Olympic athletes can't have shitty training is because the window is so small that any mistake is magnified to the nth degree. You know what I mean? Like you got regionals, you got nationals, you got worlds, you got Olympics, and they only happen every year. They only happen every couple of years. They only happen every four years. And if you miss it, good luck. If you get injured, you're now six months behind You're four, you know, likely on average, you're probably about four to six months behind now, every other athlete. Sure. You can train some things that, you know, you can, you can train around it, whatever, which most do. And some do make remarkable comebacks. It's rare, but there's a different maturity level when training Olympic athletes because the window is so small. And because the pool of the top 1% of the athletes on the planet is so small, if your best guy who's, who's aiming to win a gold medal, you're not going to pull a guy that's in 20th up to be, that's just, there's no replacement, right? So there's no real replacement for Usain Bolt 
there's no real replacement for a Michael Jordan. There, you know, these guys are, there's no replacement, but all the other guys, there's a replacement, you know, but at the Olympic level, you're, you're dealing with the top 1%. If you're dealing with college athletes, you get a new crew every year. If you're dealing with high school athletes, you get, you get a new guys every year. And then all the way down to, you know, middle school and AAU and all this stuff, it's a constant rotation of bodies. So, you know, it, it's, that's what makes it different. And that's what I think makes the mindset different. And I'm grateful that I've learned from coaches that, you know, my gymnastics coach had 12,000 hours invested in one of his athletes that have, you know, has gone on to win to nationals and like 12,000 hours. That's a massive investment in, in an individual's time. If you only see an athlete one hour every day a week, or let's say five days a week for, for, for four years, it doesn't even come close to the amount of time that coaches spend with Olympic athletes. So not only are you, do you have the athlete in mind, obviously, but you have your own time in mind because you invest that much time. You have to be smart about their training. And I think that's the biggest difference between team sports and Olympic sports is, is that, that very specific thing right there. Um, is just being smarter about the training because of the investment from both the athlete and the coaches, uh, you know, so and that that's that's something that I love that you brought up is like in, in the American football world, it's like this system works. Like, look at our team, look at our team. It's like, did it work or did you guys survive? You know, like, did it work or is it just like your talent pool? Like you brought in 200 kids and yeah. 50 of them survived the season and you won with those 50. Like, I get that part. But like that, that I, I totally I, lo- I love that point that you brought up because it's it's so true in the American football world is like the, you just have so much to drop on. And there's so much genetic, like just natural genetic potential that you have to work with that, that second string guy can rotate in just genetically, like he can play then. So it's not that your system's working. It's you broke the first five people and the second five people were good enough to play and good enough to win with. And yeah, I mean, even like, you know, what coaches I look to are coaches that take horrible systems and turn them around. I don't look at coaches that win nationals year in and year out, which sounds kind of backwards, right? But look, if you're national champion all the time, your recruiting pool is going to be the top of the top of the top. Like you're dealing with the best. So to say that your methods, and I'm not saying that they're bad coaches, I'm talking more from a strength, you know, a strength and conditioning background, right? Like you're dealing with some of the best people. So it's not really a fair comparison, right? Like I look at schools that take, go from nobody to national champions or to tournament or whatever. And they come out of nowhere. Like what did they do? Because they're recruiting probably, they didn't, they didn't have the best recruiting pool or whatever, you know? So there's something that they're doing within their system has to work to turn it around because that's the only way it would turn around. You're taking guys that probably aren't necessarily the most genetic, you know, the most gifted genetically or whatever. Um, and you implement values like smart training, hard work, consistency, discipline, and all these kind of things. And that's really what turns a lot of these programs around. Um, and it really shows the maturity of the, the strength staff and the coaching itself. So, yeah, we coach, we, we got some, we got some, you turn into like an Instagram clip machine there for a little bit with that dynamic systems theory. We talk all the time about on, on this podcast and I preach about a lot, but like the movement solutions, movement options, just making sure that athlete has a huge pool of things to draw upon when they need to draw upon them. And allow them to pick the options that they want to pick. But like you said, like so many times they don't have any options to pick. Like their option 
if they don't have an option, it's the like not make the play or to tear their ACL, you know, like hundred percent. And that's, that's kind of what we're giving them. So when you started getting into that, I have a whole page of stuff that I was geeking out about that you're talking about. So that <laughs> I think that was freaking awesome. Yeah. I mean, and to give it kind of, I want to, let's put it in a way quickly. That's just really easy to digest, right? How do we, how do we take this and go, Oh, okay. That's what it is. I try to think with that because I can really get into a lot of the terms and I, and sometimes I get carried away because then people aren't following along. They're like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Right. But let's, let's look at it like this. You have MapQuest. I don't know if you're old enough to know what MapQuest is, but I'm sure a lot of football coaches and stuff, uh, older ones, older than me, you know, I'm 30, but I remember MapQuest. So MapQuest was essentially before you really had modern GPS. You go online, you type in an address where you're starting, and you type in the address at where you're ending. And MapQuest would give you the best route calculated at that time. You print it out and you go on your road trip. If you've been on a road trip using MapQuest, you know how incredibly frustrating it can be. (laughs) Because here's what MapQuest does not take account in. Delays, traffic, accidents, construction, all these different variables that can now impact how you go from point A to point B. So you're traveling along this straight line, anything that pops up in between, you are now effect to because you have no control over these things and you're screwed. Your trip has now been pushed another six hours. You're stopping at gas stations asking for directions because maybe the freaking road changed names or they rerouted. You know, who knows? There's so many different things that could happen, right? So it was extremely frustrating to travel using MapQuest. Enter modern day GPS. Why are GPS is so great? Because when we go from point A to point B, along that route, if something happens and there's a faster route, your GPS redirects you. If there's an accident, redirected. If there's construction, redirected. If it finds instantly that another route is faster, redirected. It, be, it makes the completing the task more efficient, right? And that is what dynamic systems theory essentially is. That's what range of motion gives you. That's what strength gives you. It gives you more variables to either A, complete or B, overcome a task or anything that occurs between point A and point B. And I just use the points because it's easy to think of, but any motor task, whether it's reaching to, to in front of you to grab your cup, whether it's catching a football, whether it's throwing a football, whether it's hitting a baseball bat, whether it's riding a bike, whatever it may be, you have more options to complete that task. The best athletes, the ones where we go, holy shit, how did he make that play? Holy crap. How did Michael Jordan sink a three-point ball with 0.6 seconds on the clock down to, he's in New York. The crowd is screaming at him, telling him how much they hate him, how crappy he is. The other teammates are, you know, messing with him. How in the hell did he make that shot? He had the flu. How did he make that shot? Those are the great athletes. And what do all great athletes have in common? They have so much variability in their game that they can overcome tasks better than any other athlete in their, at their level. That's what makes them great. That's what makes them better than average. That's what keeps them a either a from not getting injured or B coming back from injuries. So well is they have that option. And that's what I want people to understand. Um, and we can kind of, I don't know how much time we have, but I can explain flexibility a little bit better and kind of get rid of some of the misconceptions of it. 
it, you know, from, from more of a science background of like, well, actually what you've been taught is just kind of BS, but we'll see if we have enough time for that. If not, you know, maybe we can, uh, maybe come back for another one or something. You know, I could talk all day, but <laughs> I'm ready. If you want to dive into flexibility, I'm ready. If you got time for it, I got time. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if you had, uh, you know, anything you wanted to ask me based off what I just said, but I think it's a really, a really interesting way to look at it, right? Like I want to operate like a GPS. I don't want to operate like MapQuest, you know, and, and this is one of my biggest frustrations too, in team sports and in, in, in teaching kids skills, let the kid figure it out. Let the kid figure out what the best technique is for their body, for their psychology. You know, it's like, you don't have any kids, but imagine trying to teach, teach a kid to ride a bike and you say, okay, here's your bike. You have certain rules, right? Like obviously you have to pedal the pedals. You have to at least initially keep your hands on the handlebars. And that's what's going to get you to ride a bike. Now imagine if you started creating all these different rules and all these, ex all these different exceptions. Well, you can't do this or you shouldn't do it like this. All of a sudden you're starting to limit the ability of the individual to accomplish the motor task. It becomes a lot more harder to do. And you see that a lot from a very young age. Well, Johnny, you're six. And I think your swinging technique is horrible. We got to elbow up, elbow up, Johnny, elbow up. You know, it's like he's six years old, man. Let him figure it out because what's going to happen is you're going to ingrain how you think something should be done in this athlete. And now you're ruining the adaptive process of the, of the, of the individual both from a, a physiological point of view, but also from a psychological point of view of how to accomplish this motor task. I mean, look at almost any athlete, the way they all take the best of the best, the way they all do something is always different. Michael Jordan doesn't shoot the same as Steph Curry. Steph Curry doesn't shoot the same as LeBron James. You know, Tom Brady doesn't throw the same as, you know, I, Jesus, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> Drew Brees. Drew Brees, you know what I mean? Like, the way they all do, they all have their own style. They have, they all have their own flair, but they've also been allowed to develop that on their own, what fits them. And I find that a really interesting conversation to have because you as a coach are usually more limiting and more destructive to an athlete's development than you think. Your, your, your job is to, to kind of guide and coax them in the right direction, but, but by allowing them to figure them out, like look at Gary Sheffield. I don't know if you know who Gary Sheffield is. Gary Sheffield is an amazing baseball player. One of the best hitters to ever play baseball. He had like this wild swing. Like, like he would like flick the bat every like, but most, most, most coaches would be like, Oh, don't do that. You know, it's like the best of the best. The interesting thing about them is they're kind of allowed to do their own thing even at a pro level, like if you're LeBron James, you can train how you want. You can get your own trainer. You can whatever. But if you're the guy coming in, you're a rookie, you got to train with the team's strength coach. And it's interesting because you start to see that pattern of like, you can tell who the strength coach got their hands on and you can tell who goes outside the box to get their information and their training. Well, it's usually the best ones, you know? So, um, it's really interesting, but well, we talk, we talk all the time. I'm going to coach. You are getting me, you taught, you're saying everything. Like I continue to preach and I love that you're saying it. So now it's not just me like continuing to say these things over and over again with no, nobody else agreeing because it's, I talked about in the baseball world. If, if you look at, is it Pete Rose? Is that the, the like a uh, hall of fame, like coach or baseball? yeah, I mean, he, um, I think he's the one that was like gambling though, wasn't he? Oh, maybe it's not him. Shoot. I, it was an Instagram video, a, su a hall of fame baseball player. So I'm a slow pitch softball player, like geek out okay. about this far. It's uh, try hard. Right. Like this <laughs> false part. But, so I've been getting into the baseball world and um, whoever this baseball guy, he's a baseball legend. I can't remember the name right now, but he was talking about 
his, his thing is like, never, if you're in a slump, never change your swing. He's like, everybody wants to talk about like, raise your elbow, change these techniques. He's like, yep. never do that. He's like, there's four things to do. He's like, you walk closer to plate, you walk farther away, you walk farther back, you walk farther forward. He's like, like, keep your swing the same. Like, don't change these okay. things. And you talk about the, the, the football world of, we tell these like uh, linebackers, like one of the big things is like, drop three yards into your spot and then do this. And like these super technical things. And What's rewarded on game day is that linebacker that drops four yards to that spot, picks the ball off and runs it for a touchdown. And he's, he's called unorthodox. He's called a playmaker and everybody loves him. But in practice, if he had done that same thing, would have got chewed out. He would have got, he would have yeah. got chewed out for not dropping to a spot, not dropping to a zone, not doing this thing. And that's where I love that you bring that up is like the, the Michael Jordans, you know, like these, these people that are the best of the best. If that was the freshman coming in doing these things, they would get chewed out for doing them. But yet we, it's what we want to see on game day. You know, it's yeah. like, why, why do we have such a disconnect in practice and what we actually want to see? Yeah. It's, it's usually like when it comes down to the wire, you give the ingenuity and the creative control to the guys on the team that should have had it all along. Right. Like Michael Jordan, for instance, you know, he, he talks about, a, he, there's a famous play where, you know, okay. It's like, they're down of course by two, I think. And, Okay, we're giving the ball to Michael, and Michael's like, he looks to uh, uh, what's his name? He became the coach for um, for Golden State for a while. Um, Curry? Uh, oh no, uh, Kerr, Steve Kerr. Kerr, yes. So Michael's like, look, man, he's he, he doesn't even tell the coach. He looks at Steve Curry. Look, look, they know it's coming to me. They're gonna double me. I'm gonna give you the ball. Be ready to shoot that ball, right? And so, what does he do? Gets the ball in, gets doubled. Passes the ball to Steve Kerr because they come off Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr is wide open, shoots the three, boom, win the game. Um, you know, why is this important? Because that's that's kind of what sports are all about. And that's what I mean is like sports are already complicated in the fact that they have their own set of rules. As a coach, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's the right thing to do to create more rules that already exist within the sport. Like there's, there's, that's what makes it a sport a sport, right? Is it's a, it's a set of rules and, and, and you have a certain task that you have to accomplish within the set of rules. Every sport on the planet is the same thing. Um, you make it more complicated by saying, well, I want you to do it this way. And I want, and I think you should throw this way. And I think you should swing this way because I really feel like athletes will figure it out. It's like you, you, you ruin this, this, again, this creative aspect and the ingenuity and the genius of the athlete by confining them to more structure, to more standards. And it's always, though you always hear that when it comes down to the wire, you throw that shit out the window and you go, guys do whatever it takes. Because I feel like sports are so much more about psychology. There's so much more that can go wrong with an individual's psychology and how it impacts their game than the than the physical nature of it, even within training itself, you know, your attitude and your approach to lifting weights is going to, is going to far have a far heavier impact over your training and your success than your program or anything like this. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's a really interesting conversation, but you know, that's what these principles kind of teach us is like, we already have all these limitations. Um, you know, and, and a lot of these limitations we can't control. So give the individual the one thing they do have control over and that's themselves. Right. So, um, and so I guess where we can kind of segue this is this is the interesting thing about flexibility, right? It's always been kind of thought in the way it's still thought to this day. Cause I still get people who say it to me is, is flexibility is, is a passive range of motion. 
right? It's like this floppy, loose, it's just kind of like, like when I think of like passive, I think like a wet noodle, right? It just kind of like flops, you know, it's just like, that's it. That's, that's what a passive range of motion is. But flexibility is actually encompassed by four different things. You have, you do have passive. Okay. So you have passive, you have static, you have dynamic and you have active. So we have to ask a, a couple questions, right? The first question is, is the joint moving? Or is the joint still? Okay, that's going to determine whether it is passive or whether, or what, I'm sorry, whether it's static or whether it's dynamic. Then we have to ask, is the muscle contracting or is the muscle relaxing? And that's going to determine whether it is now a passive stretch or a um, active stretch, right? So is the joint moving or is it not? Is the muscle contracting or is it not? And within those, within those questions, that is, that's what encompasses all flexibility. So you have dynamic flexibility, static flexibility, passive flexibility, and active flexibility. And it's determined by those four things. And then you can combine them in, in a numerous amount of ways, you know, like, you know, static, passive, you know, dynamic, passive, like it can be combined all these different ways. Here's the kicker flexibility is the state in which all movement occurs. Any movement that you make with any joint in your body is flexibility. When we talk about flexibility, it is range of motion. That's exactly what we're talking about here. But what you get is you get people who are going, well, flexibility is, is passive static flexibility. No, it's not. A Taekwondo guy who is kicking his leg 180 degrees into the air, that is dynamic active flexibility. If you're just sitting on the ground and you're reaching forward and you're touching your toes, that is passive static flexibility. If you're, if you're hinging forward at the hips, that is, you know, dynamic or depending on what joint we're talking about, it could be static active, it could be dynamic active. So we can essentially define every single movement within any, within any given range of motion and encompass it with one of those four types of flexibility in every single movement that occurs, whether you're talking about a bench press, whether you're talking about the splits, the display of any given range of motion is an individual's flexibility. Then you get these guys who kind of come in and go, well, flexibility is passive and mobility is active. And Look, I'm not one to argue semantics, but semantics are kind of important. Why are semantics important? Well, I'll tell you why semantics are important. If you go home and you say, hey, babe, you know, you know, she goes, you know, how do you like my dress? You're going out to dinner, let's say. She goes, hey, babe, you know, you ready for dinner? How do you like my dress? And you're like, it's cool, right? But then let's look at the other, let's look at the other situation. You come home. You're getting ready to go out to dinner with your, with your girl or whatever. She's got this new dress on. She's like, hey, babe, how do you like my dress? And you go, wow. You know, you look incredible. You look beautiful. Uh, semantics are kind of important because I guarantee you the reaction of the, of the individual, the communication from one individual to the other is going to severely change. The first one, you're going to have a shitty dinner. The second one, your chances of getting laid after dinner are probably really high. So semantics are important because communication is important especially from coach to athlete, from athlete to athlete, from coach to coach, from science to, you know, from lab coat to trainer, 
how we communicate is important. And I think it's important that we're all communicating the same thing because if we just start making up our own definitions to words, cool. It might be useful to somebody who's in like, and, and is using it the same way. But what about somebody who understands it differently, right? Like when you like something and when you love something, typically they have a little bit of a different meaning. So to say that mobility is like it's active range of motion, it's, it's range of motion with strength. It's just bullshit. It's not. It, it, it's just your made up version. It's your own made up definition of what you think flexibility is. And that's, it's only, you're, you're describing one quarter of what flexibility really is. And you gave it your own word, which is fine, I guess, to some degree, because I guess that's how people understand it now. But look, if we're going to look at the research and we're going to claim evidence-based and we're going to claim science-based and all my methods are science-based and all blah, 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 whatever. Well, let's at least get the definitions right. Because that's how the definitions are used in the literature. So if we're going to say that we're I'm a science-based coach or, you know, my degree is it's based on science, it's biomechanics and it's physiology and it's biology. Well, then let's at least use the, the same freaking words here. Um, and that's the biggest misunderstanding is that flexibility isn't just some passive limber range of motion. It's any range of motion that you display that encompasses multiple ways that you can display it. And, you know, that none really has a negative over the other, it, only when there's a massive gap. So, you know, if all you ever do is bench press and squat and deadlift, and then you go and do yoga, yeah, probably not the best idea because while you might be improving your range of motion, if you just go back to bench press, squat and deadlift, you're not really doing anything to now strengthen that range per se, not to the level that you need it to be, especially as a football player, right? So especially when you're dealing with contact sports and stuff like that, the amount of forces that your body's going to endure, you know, again, most injuries happen anytime the joint goes out of that space that we're strong in. So that's the trick, right? Is, is, okay, how do we improve the range of motion, but how do we strengthen it as well? And that's where a lot of, you have to get not only creative about exercises, but you have to look beyond those three movements because there's an infinite amount of ways to do it. It's just, people are lazy or people don't want to research. They don't want to continue learning. They don't want to stop doing it because it's easy. You know, whatever the reasons are because they have misunderstandings, it's, it's actually really easy to both develop flexibility at a high level and be very strong within that range of motion at a very high level. It's just not taught mainstream the way, you know, especially not with the CSCS or the, you know, the NSCA or none of these organizations are teaching this stuff. Right. So it's like, who do you go to? Who do you go to, to learn about flexibility and flexibility in a way that you can actually go, Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And now, okay, how do I take this back? And how do I apply this to my athletes and my team sports? And you're starting to see it. You're starting to see high-level programs, you know, adopt some FRC principles and some isometric stretching. And, and look, the best of the best coaches, they get it. They might not always get it, but even Paula Quinn said um, that his biggest regret was not taking flexibility seriously. I mean, that's, that's, that's a big statement coming from arguably one of the best strength coaches to ever grace this planet. So, you know, it's, it's a useful tool. It's a useful tool, but you have to be willing to go outside the box and you have to be willing to go farther than yourself and farther than your degree and farther than likely your mentors. And you have to kind of seek it out and find it. And it's helped me and it's helped hundreds and thousands of athletes overcome pain, overcome tightness, um, and so many things, right. Just become better athletes, move better. Um, and cause ultimately at the end of the day for athletes, that's, what's important, right. Is, is how well they move. Um, 
you know, so yeah. I mean, and if you just look at the high, at the highest level, LeBron James stretches, Michael Jordan stretched, Kobe stretched, Robert Federer stretches, Venus Williams stretches. Um, you know, look at any, any gold, look at any meddling Olympian, you know, for the most part, whether they're a sprinter, whether an Olympic weightlifter, they stretch, they're flexible. It's if you look close enough, the clues are out there. You know, the, look at some of the highest level baseball players, extremely flexible, you know, because you never know when you're going to need it. And, and it doesn't take a lot of extra work. That's the crazy part, right? Is like, it doesn't take a lot of extra time. It does take some extra time, but it doesn't take a significant amount of extra time, um, especially compared to what people are probably doing instead of it anyways, right? Partying, out, drinking out with their butt, whatever. As an athlete, if you're going to take yourself and your sport seriously and you can't dedicate three hours a week to stretching, you know, I question your, your, your drive really, because, um, there's no reason even you can sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix all night and stretch. And you, you know what I mean? Like it's fine. But then again, you also have to get into a program where you have coaches that are also, you know, going beyond these, these, these very limited amounts of movements to strengthen the body. Uh, and that's the tricky part. It's, it's, it's going to come from a massive shift in the industry, a massive change. Um, or these athletes are going to have to try to find it themselves. Um, and, and most really great athletes at some point do either out of pure desperation or out of just ingenuity. Like they just, it, it indicates them immediately because they're great athletes. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I should do that. You know? So it has its bad rap. Um, but so does a lot of strength training too, which I don't think is fair either, but you know, that's, that's kind of my take on flexibility. And, you know, again, if you just tie it all back in, um, it offers us a lot of things. It offers us structural balance by, kind of balancing out this tension and compression in our body, especially if you're a heavy bench presser. Like if we think about how do we think about this in a practical way, if you're a, if you're a bench presser, but you don't do any rowing, you don't do any overhead pressing, you don't do anything like that. You have a ton of compression through your delts, your, your pecs, your biceps, and a ton of tension through your upper back, you know, um, your neck in these places. So it gives us the opportunity to balance that out and kind of reset and kind of give it a quote unquote more neutral, um, setting where, you know, there's an equal amount of tension and compression on one side of the joint versus the other, um, which is what most overuse injuries are. So if you get pains from bench pressing or whatever, it's just that usually one side of the joint is imbalanced compared to the other side in terms of its ability, um, of its like compression and tension ratio, right? Like both sides have to be able to compress well, both sides have to be able to withstand tension well. So, um, and that's where using strength curves, you know, I'm sure every, I'm sure most people hopefully know that there's more than there's three, there's essentially a strength curve and there's three points of this curve. You have the middle, which is what most, almost any, almost what any, um, exercise that's properly used strengthens a bench press, a deadlift, a, a back squat, for instance, all strengthen the middle of that strength curve. It's like a bell curve, right? So on one end, it's kind of drops down and then it goes way up. It peaks and it drops down again, like a bell, you know, or a mountain. Um, and so then one of the other things that we can adopt is strengthening the two different sides of the the strength curve, which would be the most lengthened phase and the most shortened phase and bringing those up to par so that the bell curve is a lot less, uh, you know, severe, essentially, you're trying to flatten out that curve as much as you possibly can. Um, so you're not only always strengthening the middle of movements, but in most sports where most injuries occur are 
at the end of these one side of these movements where the body is extremely compressed or the body is ex, ex, under extreme tension and it cannot withstand or generate force in that position. And so that's how we manipulate strength curves to essentially kind of bring those points up to match your, you know, the, it, it won't always, it'll never be this as strong. Like that's one thing I want to make clear. You'll always be strongest in the middle, but we reduce that gap as much as we possibly can. And that's, systems like the Russian system of, of percentages and polyquin system of structural balance and things, they kind of give us a guideline on like what that might look like from their own data in, in decades of athletes and, and written data and recorded data from training programs and stuff like that. Um, but flexibility also helps us with that because the bottom line is if you're holding a stretch for five minutes, you're going to get way more time under tension in that muscle group than you ever are probably doing any exercise. So it, it offers us a solution to open up that range of motion very quickly. And now we can strengthen that range of motion while we have access to it. And it's kind of like a two steps forward, one step back battle, right? Like you're going to move two steps forward and you're going to kind of come a step back and you move two steps forward and you're going to kind of kind of step back because that's how the nervous system works. It's all, it's constantly trying to protect us and we have to prove to the nervous system, whether it's through strength or flexibility that we own this, we can control this, that we, we have control over this. Uh, and, and, and again, it plays the same for both strength and flexibility. It's something you have to earn. It's not something your body just gives to you, right? Like you have to earn it. So, you know, again, having the variability within the joint itself offers us tons of options again with the individual in the, in the, in the dynamic systems to kind of triangle, right? That's how we improve the individual by giving them more range of motion and making them stronger because the more range of motion, the more strength that they have, the more options they're always going to have. Even if it's millimeters or centimeters that opens up millions of possibilities. I mean, it's crazy. The exponential possibilities that a tiny little bit of range of motion will open up in terms of mood, movement patterns for athletes and stuff like that. It, it's, it's phenomenal to, to, to see and, and start to understand. So, um, that's primarily what I use flexibility for in team athletes is to a undo horrible training and, and, and just like patterns that they're just stuck in, whether it be spinal extension, their low backs just cranked up, whether their quads are super tight, whether their shoulders are just jacked and kind of balancing out the joint and easing some of that tension. And then obviously using the strength training to now go in and solidify that range of motion so that they can perform their sport at the highest level. And all sports have different requirements for flexibility at the most extreme end, right? A lot of baseball players and even tennis players have, sh have been shown to do the splits in their, in their game. Like Venus Williams has slid out into a split to hit a ball. Tons of NFL first basemen uh, have been able to display front splits. It's becoming a lot more popular in baseball, but you've also seen them make plays in that position. Catchers obviously have to be able to sit in a squat. So, you know, there's obviously positional um, flexibility requirements, but just as an individual, you should, if you, if you have the ability to do it and you can develop strength there, why wouldn't you? Why, why wouldn't you? So, you know, no coach, this is uh before we get to our rapid fire rounds, this is my, I, you and Rafe Kelly remind me a lot of kind of each other because I, I brought Rafe Kelly on and everybody's like, he's the, he's the, you hear football coaches, the American football coaches. He's the parkour guy. He's the movement guy. Like that's all he is. And then he talks 
and he goes into dynamic system theories. He goes into like the most science-based terms. Like he, he talks about how he's explored all these fields. Uh, I bring a, you on it and you, you have American football. He's the flexibility guy. Like it's all flexibility. It's, he wants our guys to do the splits, like this type of shit. Like, and you come on and you talk about the dynamic system theory, like uh, tensegrity, like the entire science and field behind this. And you just realize like it's, there's something there. Like it, it's not bullshit. It's not like the simplistic view that everybody wants to put everybody else in, you know, like the, yeah. the kind of boxed view it's, it's the holistic. And again, I get holistics, like an overused term, but like the holistic view of the human body and how complex and complicated it really is and how we need to take a, a different look at all of these things or have yeah. the same results that we have, which is torn ACLs injuries and same performance and surviving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of research research at this point that indicates the benefits of, of, of greater range of motion training. I mean, just from the point of view as a human being, like we were better athletes 10,000 years ago than we are now. And these guys just moved. I mean, if you ask most of the average American now to like hunt down a lion and kill it, good luck. <laughs> Forget it. They don't have the stamina. They don't have the strength. They don't have the agility. They don't have the speed. They don't have the physical qualities that humans had that was popularly had amongst, amongst males you know, 10,000 years ago, it it was, I wouldn't even, you know what? I wouldn't even go that far back. I'd go back to pre sixties when men labored, they worked hard. They laid bricks. They moved all day. They worked on farms. They built houses. They built railroads. They built streets. They built buildings. You know, when men labored, just go back to that point, you know, and, and, and you start to see like, again, the, the dynamic nature of not only their movement, but the strength and how variable it was. Like think of the tasks that you have to overcome on a daily basis on a farm or how about on a construction site or how about, you know, building a rail, like just start to think with some, just like really simple, like common sense kind of situation scenarios. Like how the hell do we get to where we are? Because it, you know, it, 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 powerlifting and, and, and weightlifting only got popular really in the seventies. Like that's when it became way mainstream. Right. And that's when all sports adopted powerlifting, weightlifting, and bodybuilding as the standard for physical training. And for the most part, we've been stuck there, but we know there's better options. We know without a doubt there's better options than those. And I'm not saying that certain exercises and movements and concepts and principles from these sports can be used to train team athletes. But what I am saying is if you train an, a team athlete, like they're a power lifter, we're going the wrong direction. We're going the wrong direction. You need to train these athletes to do the things that humans need to do, which is sprint, run, jump, crawl, hit, resist getting hit, resist falling, you know, all these different things that was just like the standard of the human being for our species to even get to where we are today. And it's not anymore. We've, we've kind of dumbed it down. So, you know, I try not to get too like frou-frou about the whole thing because you really start to lose people, but guys, it's like, it's really, really simple. It's really, really simple. And, you know, I get it. A lot of coaches, like you only have so much time with these guys, but you're making a bigger impact than you think you know, I mean, you're changing people's lives. You, I mean, you're literally, you have their, these people's futures in your hands. Um, and it's up to you to determine what direction that's going to go and do it responsibly. And I think that starting with their biology and the direct impact you have on the development of a human body and how that's going to impact them now and in the future, and even change how it's, you know, 
reacted in the past or how it's developed in the past, that's a high level of responsibility to have. Because again, this will impact you for the rest of your life. How you do these things now will impact where you're at in three years and five years when you're 50, when you're 70. It's much bigger than this game, uh, any game. But you can still do both and do it well. Like You can have good moving humans that are in good shape, that are strong and supple and fast and powerful without destroying them. And I don't know about you, but have you ever seen a powerlifter run? They're not the most graceful athletes. They're powerful. They're strong at what they need to do. But I'll be damned if I'm like if they're gonna even come close to being as fast or as graceful as Usain Bolt or you know Michael Johnson or you know Bo Jackson or Michael Jordan. They're never gonna you know it's it's just it's just a totally different it's totally different you know. So um, again, we use these concepts, but don't live dogmatically by them because you're not training powerlifters. You're training football players, and there's a lot of demands that they have to be able to that that get put on them. In a, in a lot of different ways and with a lot of different variables that they have to be able to overcome. Don't restrict what that's going to look like. Otherwise, it's you're, you're creating bad athletes. You're creating strong ones. It's certain things, but they're going to be bad athletes. And so. I, I got a real-life example. My grandpa turned 75 yesterday. Uh, when he was five years old, he started working on a farm. Uh, when he turned 18, he became a paratrooper. And ever since he got out of the military, he's construction worker. Dude is more jacked than... 90% of the population can do some of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen with a body and has never lifted a weight in his life. I don't think he's yeah. ever looked at a weight. He thinks it's like, woo, 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 and he thinks it's girly to have to lift weights because your job should have to do it. He says it all the time, but it's, it's crazy to see what the human body can do. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, like a lot of great athletes come from the back, especially in America, come from these backgrounds, even in like European nations where like these kids labored for most of their, you know, like there's a famous American rowing team that like from Oregon that beat like the Russian, it was like during the cold war, they beat like the Russian rowing team, which was, these guys were supposed to be the best. They had the best training on the planet, the most science-based training on the planet, probably shit ton of drugs. And you got these, you got these farm boys from Oregon that have been hauling lumber their whole, their whole childhood show up out of nowhere. They beat Stanford. They beat Harvard. They go to worlds. They go to eventually the Olympics and they beat the Russian rowing team. These boys were loggers. That's what, you know what I mean? Like, so it makes you go, Hmm, you know, that's, that's really interesting because they didn't really have any quote unquote formal training, but these boys worked hard and they lifted a lot and they lifted a lot in a lot of different ways because lifting logs and hauling logs is very awkward. And Bench press and deadlift and squats not going to get you hauling logs. You got to figure out, you got to, again, you have to, your body has to be really good at problem solving and moving in different positions. You know, it's same thing. It's like guys that haul furniture or, or whatever. Like we all know it. We all know it exists. Old man strength, farm strength, whatever, construction strength, whatever you want to call it. It, it is an interesting comparison to make because it, it, it should, if you think about it logically, kind of make us question strength training, right? Like, I mean, even if you look at like the Bulgarians, for instance, who squatted three times a day, every day, except Sunday, people go, oh, that's overtraining. That's, you know, no way you can't do that. But it's like, you think your grandpa showed up to the, to the lumber yard every day and told his boss, like, uh, you know what, sir, like, uh, I'm really overtrained from yesterday. I think I'm going to have to take a couple days off to recover. Then I'll come back. Hell no, you just show up and do the work, man. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's interesting because it really puts all of the things that we learn about in, in physiology and in biomechanics and school and stuff into question, right? It makes us really go, hmm, 
And most people, most coaches who get down this rabbit hole do experience the same thing you experienced. And that is everything changes and you basically have to unlearn everything that you just learned for four years. And it's like, it can be frustrating. Um, but it's just, it is what it is. You know, it's not much you're going to do about it unless they start going and changing all the, uh, all the school books and stuff, which, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, but it's, it's up to you anyways, you know, to, to reach out and to, and to like, it's in the responsibility of no one but yourself to learn more. Like, don't, don't think it's just going to come around and someone's going to go, Hey, come here. I got a secret to tell you. No, you got to go out there and find it, man. And all the best coaches do, you know? So, and the best athletes do too, as well. Boom coach before, before we finish up, let's get to our rapid fire rounds. Um, and the first one is kind of your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of. I think that the best books, um, I'll, I'll name some flexibility books because a lot of guys need a little bit more education in that. The first one is going to be stretching and flexibility, uh, by Kit Laughlin. Fantastic book gives you tons of basic information, uh, as well as, um, you know, extra stretches and exercises and things, but he really puts a lot of theory in there and also a lot of, you know, evidence and products that he's produced over the years to back that theory up. Um, the second one would be stretching scientifically by Thomas Kurz. If you can find the first edition on the internet, find it because he has been revised. And in my opinion, the first edition is better than the following, uh, editions. Um, so if you can find stretching scientifically by Thomas Kurz, um, that's going to be a really good one as well. Um, and those are probably the two best books if I had, if for, for stretching, um, and, and flexibility training and the research and the science behind it, you know, some others, if, if you didn't, weren't made to read it in school and you, and you do have your CSCS or you're a strength coach and you have some formal education. So you understand biology and stuff a little better. Uh, I would say that super training, um, it's probably a great book. Um, but I can't even think of his name, Russian guy, but also, but you're or yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that. or something, yep, you know, yeah. one of those Russian names. And Mel Sif, uh, Super Training is a great book. Um, and there's some even old school books written like Super Strength. And, and these were like turn of the century, kind of like golden era guys that wrote books like that, um, which we didn't get into too much discussion of today. But some of the old time, if you get some time, if you, if you do get want to go down the rabbit hole, just go start researching like pre 50s strength athletes and you learn some phenomenal things because they were able to accomplish strength feats unmatched today. And these guys didn't have access to drugs. They trained a shit ton. A lot of them were laborers and they trained on top of that. You know, a lot of these guys, again, were like steel workers, lumber workers, farmers, you name it. So they have a, 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 a very heavy labor demand type of job. And then on top of that, they do strength training. Um, you know, those, those, are, those would be some good places to start to kind of just get some, some basics, you know, in terms of something that you could pick up super training. You're not going to read in, in any short amount of time. It's a very dense book, but the other ones will definitely give you some almost instant ways to start implementing flexibility into your practice. Now, um, you know, that, that, that works for, for whatever, especially stretching scientifically because he modifies and kind of gives examples based on what kind of sport you play at the very end of the book. So these are some good ones for soccer players. These are some good ones for baseball players. These are some good ones for football player or whatever. Um, so that's, it's really a cool breakdown. Oh, next question. And this is one uh, I'm interested in your 
your kind of answer because it's who's the next guest that you think we should have on uh, and somebody that can bring us down into some of the rabbit holes that, that you kind of talked about today. Moses Bernard, Dr. Moses Bernard. Um, I, I did a pot. My, I actually also have a podcast. I did my first episode with him. He's a good friend of mine. Um, he's a chiropractor here in Tampa in the Tampa area. Um, he has an extensive athletic background, track and field, short track cycling. Um, he again, is a chiropractor has a CSCS. He worked for Toronto blue Jays. Um, he works with tons of high level athletes. Why he's so good is because he can take you into these concepts very well. And two is because coming from a chiropractor, chiropractor background, he's going to blow your mind in how he approaches chiropractors like that, that school of science, because it's different than most. Um, so I think he'd be a good one uh, to kind of go down these, these rabbit holes of, of training and, and how these things can apply to, um, to, to your guys and, and give them a little bit more inf- more, more, more in depth insight, I guess you could say. Um, but he communicates it very well. So that's, that's always important, right? Like there's a lot of guys out there that can throw this information at you, but they speak it to you in a language you're not going to understand where he can make it very digestible. So I would say Moses, definitely reach out to Moses. Boom. And then the next question, uh, what's kind of next for you? Well, maybe it, maybe it's a one-year goal. Maybe it's a five-year goal. Maybe it's something you're looking to accomplish this month, but what's kind of next for you? So I have, uh, launched my own strength, but on my own basically training platform, um, it's called strength culture. So it is an app which has, will have a series of different programs and kind of based on different goals, um, that will incorporate obviously all my methods and techniques that I've learned from others and develop myself over the years and kind of how I've put it all together. Um, there's a flexibility program. I have a hip program, um, because I find that I not only have I found, but I know from experience that a lot of issues come from the hips and a lot of guys and girls don't have good control range of motion or strength of their hips, uh, regardless of how much you squat or deadlift. Um, I have what basically what's called the actually strong program, which is essentially just a, um, it's like a, it's like a powerlifting program, not a powerlifting program, like a power building program. So it's, it's a strength slash hypertrophy program. Um, which, you know, you kind of develop both qualities, which is why it's called actually strong. Um, and, I, and I'm going to do several others, but you know, they all incorporate my flexibility techniques and different flexibility things for different goals and strengths, you know, from some out there strength stuff that you've probably never done before to squatting bench press and all these other things. So that's, um, that's kind of my project that I've started up since I've left ATG. Um, and one of my, I guess we'll go ahead and get my training goals is I'm, I'm approaching double body weight squat. I am ter- currently squatting every single day. Um, I have been doing so for almost two months. I freaking love it. Um, it's, it's a weird kind of thing because it was brutal for the first few weeks, but then you get over the hump and it's just like, then you start to crave it. And it's really interesting. It's not something I'd recommend for everybody. Obviously I'm a, I do this professionally. I'm a fitness professional. I have more time to dedicate to my training and things like that than most people. So I squat every day and then follow it up with a traditional split at which I split up, um, you know, chest back, a leg accessory day, and then an arm shoulders day and take a rest, um, from that not the squatting, but from that, and then repeat that on top of the squatting every day. Um, so I'm doing that. And my goal is to, I don't know that I'll hit double body weight by the end of the year. I'll take it if I do. Um, but definitely very soon, if, if at least in the very beginning of next year. And this is like a full ass to grass, like ass touching heels, high bar squat. Um, I'm sitting at 
probably about 218 right now. So I have to squat around 190 kilos uh, to get that. Um, it's kind of defeating sometimes because I had a guy text me today who was like, yeah, I just want to double body weight. And then he's like 140 kilos was like double body weight for him. <laughs> so it's like the bigger you are, the harder it is, but it's a fun challenge, you know? So that's just kind of it, man. You know, and to keep to, you know, it's supposed to be rapid fire, but to keep, to keep getting this message out there and just like, look, challenge the standard, you know, because the best coaches are, you know, even if you look at guys like Charles Poliquin, you know, he was kind of an outcast in the industry for a lot of years. And is basically now people are realizing the genius that he, he kind of was. And it's, it's like that within the industry, right? Like the real, the coaches that are willing to lay it all on the line and kind of challenge the standard are usually ridiculed at first. And then they're, you know, you start to realize the genius later and usually it's too late. You know, unfortunately he did pass, um, but he left a lot here for us to digest and kind of use, you know, coach summers is kind of the same way. Just again, I, I told, that's how I got down the rabbit hole is just, he, he was so adamant about challenging the standard and the mold that I had to look into it. And so, you know, be brave enough, I think to do that, look, be, be, be willing to look outside the box because there's so much more outside this tiny scope that we tend to see things through. Um, you never know what, what is out there to offer you. And, and, and more than anything, what's going to help you create a difference in other people. And that's, that's the most important thing is this is bigger than us, you know, and, and, and as a coach, it's my opinion that our responsibility is of course, the physical development and mental development of these athletes. Um, but to do it in a way that, um, we can do better because we can do better. We absolutely can do better. Um, and I speak for all of us, including myself, you know, there, there's more out there for us to learn and understand. And that's just kind of, I hope, you know, I hope that's kind of what I leave it with, you know? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that leads us into our very last question of the podcast is what do you hope to leave this field with? What do you want your legacy to be? I'd like to see it change. I'd like to see the standard shift. Um, it'll never be complete. I mean, we still have people who think that's your knees going over your toes, a bad thing. <laughs> we still have people thinking that your spine bending is a horrible thing, even though the only time your spine doesn't bend at any point in the middle of the day is when you're not weightlifting weights, you know, even if you're playing a sport, there's never going to be a position in which your spine is neutral. So shifting the mold in, in a way that it's, it's going more the opposite direction than it is now. And I think we're starting to see that. I think we're starting to see a lot of young coaches kind of come up and, and challenge not only what they've been taught and what they've learned, but challenge themselves. And I think it takes a lot of bravery uh, to do that. There's a lot of risk too, right? Because there is going to be failure that comes with that but it's kind of part of the game, right? Like, so I think my biggest thing is, and one of the biggest things I've always relied upon for as a coach, both with training athletes, but also training general population, you know, your everyday business guy, mom, whatever is educating them on why these things are important. Because I think all too often, do we just tell people you got to do this and you got to do this and you got, you got to eat like this and you got to move like this. You got to exercise like this. You know, anybody can, can get somebody to lose weight. Anybody can get somebody a little bit of muscle mass or get stronger, but the concepts go so much deeper. And I think educating people on why they're doing the things they do is going to stick a lot longer than you think. You know, a lot of the clients that I've had, I've had for five, six, seven years which is unheard of, you know, there's a revolving door in, 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 in personal training and stuff like that. And, um, I have a lot of loyal clients because I take the time to make them understand, 
to the point where they could walk away from me and train themselves. But they value the knowledge, they value the education and the knowledge and the willingness to, to teach and continue to learn and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think at some point just, you know, challenging the standard and, and being one of the individuals that was responsible for kind of changing the standard. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that come for me. You know, I, I think I'm just getting started uh, really young. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to what the future brings. It's freaking awesome, coach. I, I want to thank you for the time for this podcast. This is awesome. There's, I, I text or I message you right before saying, uh, looking forward to some knowledge bombs. And I, I think you dropped some nukes on this, on this podcast. I hope so. I hope I gave people some things to think about, you know, that's all you can really do is what they do with it is up to them, but hopefully I gave them something to think about and, and, uh, in ways that they, in, in a receivable way, you know, that doesn't come off like too offensive or anything, but I think sometimes you just have to get it out there, you know, say it how you'll, how you need to say it. There's no need to sugarcoat it. We're all, we're all adults. We can, you know, we don't have to take everything so personally. You just, you know, cause I've been in that position. I've been in the same position that most, you know, like, oh yeah, I need, there's more for me to learn. There's more for me to learn. There's more for me to learn. And I'm not the bearer of knowledge. You know, I have so many mentors and and teachers that I look up to. And I think that's as a coach and as an educator and as a, you know, as a trainer, I think that's like, don't forget that, right. Don't forget that no matter how good you are, there's always a little bit more out there for you to learn. There's a little bit, there's ways we can make things just a little bit better. just a little bit better day in, day out. And over the time, you know, where that's going to lead you is, you know, the, the, the opportunities are endless for most of us. We just don't realize it, you know? So yeah, man, I, I'm so grateful for you, uh, reaching out to me and, and having me on here. I, you know, I can't thank you enough. I love sitting down and talking shop and, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Austin. I, I really appreciate it. Boom. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.